Hey everybody, I'm flying solo today. And before I get into our show for this week, uh, I have a request. If you feel like you have gotten something of value from the Endurance Innovation Podcast, be it some little tidbit about your position and aerodynamic drag or something having to do with your um, metabolic fitness or cooling or anything else, anything that you feel has made you faster on race day, um, what I'd like you to do is think to yourself, what you would have had to have paid in, let's say, a wheel set or even a helmet, which is less expensive than a wheel set in terms of CDA per dollars, um, or, you know, suit or even calf sleeves, even calf sleeves. Think about what you would have uh, what you would have had to have spent to get the same amount of uh, speed benefit on race day. And uh, then consider pitching in, because if you've gotten something out of value, it'd be super cool if you could uh, pay forward and uh, show us a little bit of love on patreon and we're at patreon.com slash endurance innovation and with that i want to say thank you to our most recent supporter joel who pitched in just the other day uh to support the show thank you very much sir much appreciated okay on with the show and uh as i mentioned uh, today's is going to be a little bit of a different format because i am solo and uh this is maybe only the third time that i've done one of these on my own um this was supposed to be uh a two-person show where I was uh, interviewing my friend uh, and an athlete I coach, and uh, he himself is a coach, uh, Thomas Skelton from Merge Multisport in South Carolina. But the format just didn't work. Um, it's a conversation that we've had over the past several months, and uh, these are questions that he put to me that then I provided answers to. So initially, I wanted to have him on the show uh, to have it as a conversation, but uh, it just didn't make a ton of sense to do it that way. Uh, we will have Thomas on the show uh, for, a fu- for a future episode, but this one's just going to be um, a solo Q&A where uh, I go over some of the highlights of our conversations in the past handful of months. Um, and that'll be the first part of the show. And then the, the, the second part of the show, we'll, I will cover uh, three questions from listeners uh, about uh, Professor Dustin Jobert's uh, episode that we just aired on Super Shoes. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Okay, uh, let's kick things off with uh, bike fit. So Thomas had usually the good opportunity to uh, get himself a new bike, although this one uh, came about as uh, as a bit of a sad story. He had uh, uh, an interaction with a vehicle that was entirely not his fault and resulted in, uh, unfortunately, uh, him having to miss his A race for 21 um, and his uh, speed concept being rendered no longer roadworthy. But uh, I guess the silver lining on that whole affair was the fact that he w- was able to go out and uh, acquire a new bike. Um, and we did spend a little bit of time talking about uh, ideal fits and uh, and how to size a frame uh, for the for the athlete. And um, I think the, the biggest takeaway for us was that uh, given the really broad range of adjustability afforded by modern cockpits, 
frame size isn't as critical as it once was. Now, that's not to say that it's not important, but uh, with, a, with a modern cockpit, it is very reasonable to, uh, to claim that uh, anyone can fit two or probably even three different sizes uh, within, a, within a manufacturer's model, um, but there's probably one that, that's going to fit best, the one that, that sort of fits in the middle um, of the adjustment range of the cockpit. So whereas before, folks would talk a lot about um, stack and reach on a triathlon bike being really critical, and that's the the stack being the vertical dimension from the center of the bottom bracket to um, basically the, the top center part of the, the head tube, um, and reach being the horizontal distance of the same same thing from the center of the bottom bracket to that uh, top of the uh, the head tube. But these days, um, I think it's much more useful and instructive to talk about those same dimensions from the bottom bracket, but no longer to the top of the head tube, but rather to the center back of the pad, of the elbow pad. Um, and with, you know, as I said, with modern cockpits, that the stack and reach range uh, is tremendous, so which co- and it easily covers... Um, one or two sizes uh, of a frame. So um, what we ended up uh, with with Thomas's position after he had had his fit, and then we'd sort of made some made some tweaks uh, based on photos that he sent me, some suggestions that I had for him, was to really stretch him out uh, and keep him fairly high. Uh, one of the comments that he made to me was that his this new bike that he had. Um, felt much more upright and much more comfortable than his old bike, and it, at first it, it didn't feel right. You know, it felt like it was it was too slack and too too relaxed. Um, and then my comment was uh, was that that's probably okay. <laughs> that means that you can you can stay in aero for longer, and that means you can probably put down a little bit more power than before. Uh, you may be you know less uh, less banged up uh, for the run off the bike, especially in long course. And you're not necessarily giving up any aerodynamic advantage because, uh, as uh, we've seen in some really high level, you know, high level pros and high level age group folks, um, going tall in the front but stre- being able to stretch yourself out has all sorts of benefits um, from you know from being able to. Uh, obtain a, a flat back without having to rotate your pelvis so far forward as you would if you were, you know, short and low, which was the old school sort of fast position. And, you know, having that open hip angle, as I mentioned, allows potentially to the athlete to derive a little bit more power from the pedal stroke. Um, and there's probably also less, you know, less fatigue for the upper body because there's a, there's a less uh, steep angle if we're, if we're thinking from the, the saddle to the, to the elbow pads. So there's less weight on the, on the upper body. So it has to do less work. So there's potentially less strain for the upper arms, the shoulders, the muscles across the back. So there's a lot of wins and having a, a slightly taller position that's longer, um, and uh, that's what uh, that's what Thomas ended up with. He's he actually sized up on a bike, and he's riding it with a fairly long stem. Um, of course, what the aerodynamic impact of that uh, is, we can't really you know be certain un- until we test him, which is maybe something we'll do in the summer or when it gets a little bit warmer. Uh, but uh, for now, he's comfortable and he's uh, he's uh, banging away. Another conversation that we had, which I think is uh, is a useful one to. Uh, uh, to explore here is the periodic feeling that 
we as athletes have lost a lot of fitness. Now, I don't know about you listeners, but this is something that I feel definitely from time to time. And I certainly have these conversations with, uh, with my athletes. Um, and, uh, yeah, Thomas was gracious to, enough to, to give me permission to share this, uh, this exchange with you. Um, and this was a period where, uh, he'd had after the crash, um, and then he'd had, uh, some illness, um, and so he'd been, he hadn't been training very regularly for a period of maybe four weeks. And then when he was able to get back on, when everything was ticking along nicely, um, he just, you know, he felt really out of shape. And this is something that I, I can definitely speak from personal experience. I've, I've definitely been there as well after a bout of illness or, or some other, you know, reason for a prolonged uh, period of inactivity. Um, but, uh, the, the good news is that even though, we do lose fitness after about a week's, you know, uh, cessation of activity, um, and it, it does the decline is fairly rapid in the beginning. The very good news is that it comes back almost as quickly as it fades, um, and the, that the, that that effect, the the detraining effect, is acute in nature, and then retraining is acute. The the initial retraining is acute, um, and the the mechanism behind this I don't know very well. I'm I'm kind of relying on. Uh, what I remember hearing from Collie Moore when he was talking about the effects of uh, blood plasma volume and how quickly that changes. Um, this sort of coming from the theory that our bodies are lazy and they want to maintain homeostasis. So as soon as we remove the the stressor of, you know, daily aerobic activity, our bodies get a little bit lazy and they don't they don't necessarily need to carry around all that extra liquid in in the blood and uh we we lose it and quite quickly in fact uh and so then the effect of that um of that loss when we start to reintroduce exercise is that for the same mechanical output be it pace or uh, pace running swimming or power on the bike uh heart rates noticeably higher and um and rpe is also higher so um but as i said the 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 effect is is, is not long lasting because as soon as you start reintroducing uh endurance exercise and then provided your drinking sufficient fluids that blood plasma volume rebounds very very quickly so within within i think uh Kali had a, a study, which I don't quite remember, but certainly within, I think, seven to 10 days um, that uh, those fluid levels are restored. So that's the good news. And uh, it's borne out in uh, in sort of anecdotal evidence, in case studies. You know, I find it takes me about seven days to bounce back. Uh, after about seven days of, of easy aerobics uh, work, Thomas was good to go too. He was feeling great. Um, and then in other folks that I've coached, that seems that, that, that seems to be the effect, that it's only, you know, you got to give it a little bit of time, be patient, do the easy work and then you'll be right as rain. So kind of the takeaway there is this stuff happens. It's going to, you know, there's going to be periods where you are not able to train for any number of reasons. Um, the, uh, there will be detraining for sure. It will, it will happen if you're, if you're off for more than a week, the, the biggest losses will be recouped very quickly as soon as you restart training. Yeah. Just do make sure that you go easy in the very beginning and at least the first seven days, um, if you're on the bike, you're probably okay to just cut it at seven days. But um, if you're coming back from a running injury, then that could be a longer period of ramping up because not only are we concerned with the sort of the aerobic metabolic issues, um, 
which do bounce back quickly, but depending how long you've been away from running, then there could be detraining effects on the muscular level, um, which uh, expose you to potentially a higher risk of injury if you reintroduce running back. But that's a whole separate conversation. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Another really common topic of conversation with us uh, has been that of uh, VO2max. Now, you've heard Bjorn Kafka talk about it a few episodes back. He did a really nice job. And uh, it's, you know, it's a favorite topic of mine with uh, with some of my more curious athletes. Um, and uh, one of the things that... that uh, Thomas and I spoke about was the importance of the the VO2 max value, the you know the kind of the flux rate of oxygen, the the O2 flow rate value, versus the power at VO2 max. If we're taking the cycling example, or the pace of VO2 max, if we're talking about running, and uh, I I'm a strong believer that it's this latter um, metric, the, the power of VO2 max or the pace of VO2 max that is far more relevant in both predicting, um, athletic performance and also in guiding training. So it's, um, you know, it's kind of fun to know if you're a 60, 65 milliliters per minute per kilogram sort of person, which is really quite getting quite exceptional. Um, but you need to still be able to do something with that, all that oxygen that your body can can absorb. And you need to be able to turn that into mechanical power in order to, you know, perform well in, in endurance sport. So uh, that's that's why I'm a big believer that um, it's the it's the power of VO2 max or the pace of VO2 max. That's a really critical metric. And uh, that's why getting hung up on the the raw VO2 max values is maybe a little bit of a red herring for most of us. And um, in doing some research, Thomas sent me a great paper, which I'll uh, link in the show notes, that suggested something very similar and uh, was pointing to the fact that the, the raw VO2 max number, so that the, the oxygen flux number, is actually a reasonably good predictor of overall health rather than athletic performance. So uh, folks with higher VO2 max values are, you know, it can be said at least metabolically are healthier than folks with lower VO2 max values. At least that was the claim of this one paper. Um, and I think that's probably an easier claim to make than um, say, you know, than claiming that uh, somebody with a high VO2 max value is going to be a better endurance athlete. Because of course, what VO2 max does not capture, and this is what Bjorn spoke about, is uh, is your gross efficiency, right? So your gross motor efficiency. So you could have somebody with an enormously large aerobic engine. Uh, you can burn a ton of oxygen, but you know if the chassis is all beat to all beat to shit and not working so good, um, or if there are other other issues in the body that prevent the conversion of that metabolic energy into mechanical energy, then you know. You, there, there are other limits to how fast you can go. And there are examples of folks who have very high VO2 max values who are just not stellar athletes. They're very, very good, but they're not at that world-class level that they should be um, if, if we're just measuring them by, by VO2 max. We also spoke quite at length about uh, testing. Um, so this is performance testing in biking and running. Um, and... Uh, you know, he was, he would ask how often do we want to test and, uh, and how, what sort of testing do we want to do? And, uh, you know, my answer is really, it depends. It depends on the athlete. Um, I definitely am a fan of testing because if you're, you know, the, the famous axiom that if you're not, uh, if you're not measuring your guessing, I think applies to 
a large extent to testing. I, I don't think that testing is strictly necessary for everybody, but I think it's a very good idea if you can pull it off. So the frequency of testing really depends on on where the athlete is in their development. Um, I think it makes sense to test every every you know two to three months, sort of uh, at the at the most frequent. Uh, any any more frequent than eight weeks is, uh, I think, probably overkill. It's just more you know curiosity than anything else. Um, and then if you're testing any less frequently than every couple, you know, than every six months or so, then you may be missing some um, some adaptations that uh, you may want to respond to by changing the intensity of the training, which the testing should show you. Um, so that's on the on the frequency side. As far as the format, there's all sorts of different ways we can test. Of course, there are field tests that are um, you know sort of in the mean maximal power um, flavor, where you hold the fastest pace or the highest power for a set duration, and then based on that, you can infer or directly you can directly measure if you're actually doing the the, the duration that you're interested in. Um, uh, markers like your you know your threshold power, your threshold pace for running and swimming. Um, and uh, that's a useful metric. If you're going to only measure one thing, that that's not a bad place to start because it, it, you, from that you can extrapolate training intensities to some extent. Um, I really like to know that number, so that sort of that threshold, uh, as well as you, my uh, pace or power at VO2 max, which is what I just talked about. So there's some pretty good tests to uh, to determine to determine those two values. If you have those two values, I argue that you can you can pretty much design a uh, intensity training program for uh, for an endurance athlete, uh, unless they have very specific needs, like if unless they're you know like a track sprinter, obviously, or uh, um, or maybe like a criterium racer, where you may want to know sort of like the higher end stuff, think power above VO two max. But um, for us triathletes, long distance runners. Power above VO2 max, I would argue, is not super, super useful to know. So uh, determining uh, VO2 max, for example, on the bike, if you're outside, four-minute uh, all-out test is pretty good. Um, if you're inside, the 60-second ramp is pretty useful. If you're, you know, if your threshold's north of 200 watts, you can do probably 25 watt steps every 60 seconds. Um, if you're below 200, maybe do 20 watt steps every 60 seconds. And then the, the, uh, the max power that you can hold for the last 60 seconds is your, is roughly your, um, power of VO2 max. If you're doing it indoors, outdoors, like I said, a four minute time trial is a little bit better. Um, if, uh, if you're running, I find that like, a something like a five minute, ish r roughly five minute all-out effort is your pace for at, at vo2 max so that's the pace power of vo2 max for threshold um you know you can do the old 20 minute test on the bike and then take five percent off of that uh that seems to agree fairly well with most people um there are other ways to do it uh running i like to go a little bit longer you know maybe like run a 10k and see what your your, your pace for a 10k is that's that's probably pretty close it's going to be ballpark threshold's kind of a squishy number anyway so it's as long as you're in the ballpark you're usually pretty good um and then knowing those two numbers um your power at vo2 max your power at uh, at threshold if we're talking about the bike you can like i said you can design a program uh, quite readily i think um, the only other variable that that doesn't capture is your lower threshold or your LT1, the, 
um, you know, first ventilatory threshold. Uh, that is uh, a useful uh, metric for sure. Um, there are ways that you can you can get at it. On the bike, I actually am quite. A, I'm a fan of the uh, the HRV DFA Alpha One test that we spoke about quite a bit with uh, Bruce Rogers. Um, running it doesn't seem to work quite as well, so for running it's a little bit trickier. Uh, for running, I, I almost I like to use a you know a steady state run and paying attention to heart rate. So if you're doing a steady state run, ideally this is indoors in a controlled con- controlled conditions or on a track in control in controlled conditions. But uh, you're you're trying to find um, the maximum pace where your heart rate is stable over like a long horizon, over like a you know a thirty minute period, twenty to thirty minutes. Um, you have to be careful that you don't want to, you don't want to go so you don't want to do this in in the middle of a long run because you could be introducing muscular fatigue effects or dehydration effects or glycogen depletion effects, which could interfere with your with your findings. But sort of in that thirty to sixty minute window of an easy run or an endurance run is where you want to look for this. So you're you're looking for a maximal pace in that thirty to sixty minute window where your heart rate doesn't really move very much. Right, so where your uh, your heart rate stays pretty stable. There are a few other field tests for lower threshold for runs, but that's the one that I tend to use. So it's for me, it's a bit of an iterative uh, approach that I'll use with my athletes. If you have access to a lab, then you get all of them all in one go. You'll have your power, pace of VO two max. You'll have your you know your threshold or your you know your your FTP or second lactate threshold, whatever you want to call it. Uh, maximum lactate steady state. I know there's a little bit of a difference between all those terms, but they're, you know, roughly in the same ballpark. Um, and then you're, you'll, you'll also get your, your lower threshold, um, which is sort of, you know, the top of your fat max. And that's if you have access to a lab. And if you don't, of course, you can do, uh, you know, a, a test with, uh, with AeroTune on the bike, which is pretty, pretty handy, I find. Um, it's pretty close to being spot on. And uh, they're, they are working on the run version of that test as well. So once, once that hits prime time, I was just talking to Sebastian about it uh, a little while ago. And he's, I know he's, he's uh, at work on that one. Uh, but yeah, once that drops, then all of you runners with just, you know, just your GPS watch can, uh, can do some pretty cool testing on a track. So that'll do it uh, for the topics that uh, Thomas and I wanted to cover. Um, let's jump to the questions that I received um following the conversation with dustin uh the first couple are from uh, michael uh and he wanted to know about testing protocols um we mentioned that it was uh on the podcast uh dustin mentioned that it was a five minute on five minute off protocol um and michael just wanted uh, specific details on that protocol and the answer to that one is really easy. It's in the paper. So I'll relink the paper to this episode so you folks can read it if you want to, you know, try it at home. Uh, Michael's second question, and I'll read a verbatim. Uh, for field testing, can running power via stride be used instead of heart rate? Uh, and then he puts in brackets. I'm thinking not since stride is measuring kinematic output, not metabolic. But I'd like to hear Professor Jobert's opinion on this. And... Um, uh, Dustin wrote back, uh, I've not collected uh, stride data and I'm not familiar enough with their algorithm to say, but I would be skeptical. The most effective shoes actually increase vertical oscillation and stride length while decreasing cadence. So not sure how that would be perceived by their algorithm. 
So that's from uh, from Dustin uh, Stride. If you're listening, if you have uh, a different thought on this, let us know because we'd love to uh, we'd love to hear from you. And the last question we had was from uh, Tara Posnikov, who's a, a friend and a, a past guest actually on the show, and she was just asking for a link to the study that uh, Dustin mentioned, which had the uh, Excel calculator for, uh, I believe it was for running economy given. Um, uh, given an athlete's uh, height, weight, and uh, and a few other parameters, so I'm going to uh, post that in the show notes as well because uh, I uh, I wrote to Dustin and he sent it to me. Okay, with that uh, we'll wrap up the just a little short one today, folks. Um, we'll be back next week with uh, with a formal interview, which uh, I think you like. As always, thank you very much for listening. Um, if you enjoy the show, consider giving us a rating and a review. Uh, better yet, tell your friends. Uh, tell them to listen to Endurance Innovation if you learn something useful. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, do consider also supporting us on Patreon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.